You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 20th of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro unveils his latest plan for combating hyperinflation. Will it work? Spoiler alert, no. My guests Oscar Juadiola Rivera and Stephen Diel will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the difficulties of running for office from prison and how Brazil's former president hopes to counter them, the 50th anniversary of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia and what, if anything, it tells us about Russia and Europe today, and Austria's foreign minister did, but would you want Vladimir Putin at your wedding? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Oscar Huadiola Rivera, reader-in-law at Birkbeck University of London, and the Russia analyst Stephen Diel. Welcome both. And we will start in Venezuela, the government of which is today introducing economic reforms intended to deflate the country's runaway currency. It now occurs to me that you can't deflate something that's run away. That is a poor, poor choice of metaphor, but the point, I think, stands. Uh, the Bolivar is to be replaced with something called the Sovereign Bolivar, and new banknotes are being issued in recognition of the fact that they were running out of space to add zeros on the old ones. Inflation in Venezuela is running north of 80,000%. The only growing sector of its economy is that of refurbished jokes from Weimar, Germany, about taking your wheelbarrow full of cash to the shops and then finding that someone stole on the wheelbarrow and left all the money behind. Um, Oscar, the possibly the easy question first, is this going to work? Well, it all depends on the, the uh, trust of the Venezuelan people. Uh, first, because uh, the measures uh, have some interest uh, to them. I mean, the uh, uh, new currency is uh, the first one to use blockchain technology in order to bypass uh, sanctions and yes, well, what could politically motivated go wrong? people. And there are, there are uh, uh, problems with that. But it is also the case that uh, other countries are looking into uh, following a similar model uh, India, uh, sorry, China and Russia are building uh, apparently uh, gold reserves, uh, which uh, uh, might be used in order to delink somewhat from the dominance of US, uh, the US dollar. Iran has uh, uh, announced that it might uh, follow a similar path. And it is the case that blockchain technology is taken uh, more and more seriously within the United States uh, as well. So this will be uh, a flagship program. And as uh, every experiment, of course, it has the potential to fail. But there is something interesting to it. Uh, the other measures, uh, you know, tax measures, uh, subsidies uh, to gasoline and so on and so forth, uh, do depend, as well as the previous one, on the trust of uh, the Venezuelan people. And some of them are already uh, voting with their feet. They're leaving the country, but others uh, remain there. So uh, uh, it remains to be seen whether or not uh, these, uh, uh, you know, quite uh, uh, daring, uh, at least in technological uh, <laughs> terms, uh, uh, policy uh, might work. Uh, daring is indeed a word for it. Um, Stephen, as, as Oscar points out, or as Oscar 
delineates there. The, the new sovereign Bolivar will be anchored to a crypto or virtual currency called the Petro. Is this something that you would be personally willing to stake your mortgage on? Certainly, certainly not. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it has no foundation, no solid foundation behind it. I mean, I, I think, you know, all these, this talk of uh, moving away from the dollar and, and as Oscar was just saying, you know, that Russia is looking to do it in China. Um, I don't think the Americans are going to be having too many sleepless nights just yet because uh, it's like the old um, uh, post-Soviet joke where the, uh, the Russian who has used his freedom to travel and has gone to America and he comes back and someone says, well, what was it like? He said, pretty much the same as here. Their dollars are the same as our dollars. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think the, do the dollar is going to be the, uh, the benchmark against which most currencies that matter uh, are, are still going to be matched for, for years to come. Well, Oscar, on, on that thought, would it not... Well, I mean, leaving aside uh, matters of Maduro's own pride and arguably even of national pride, has Venezuela not reached the point at which it would make more sense, really, for it to do as Zimbabwe did in similar circumstances and just abandon its currency and use the US dollar instead? Well, some uh, uh, analysts are reading this particular set of measures as a step in that direction. And uh, uh, it has to be said that, uh, of course, we can uh, trust that uh, the U.S. dollar's dominance will remain for quite a while. We may also be witnessing the beginning of uh, uh, that, uh, uh, the, de the decline of that dominance. After all, if history teaches us a lesson, is that uh, no institution is eternal. And uh, these technologies do seem to provide uh, some measure of hope that wasn't there, for instance, when uh, Chile in 1973 tried Project Cybersyn. I see this as Project Cybersyn 2.0. And let us remind ourselves that Project Cybersyn 1.0 did work, which is why uh, the U.S. and I mean, its uh, local uh, allies uh, did have to apply full force in order to push for regime change. It also has to be said that it isn't clear whether regime change in Venezuela will be the solution for this particular problem. Uh, the problem might remain and is likely to remain even if there is a, a, a such a change. And so we have a very, very difficult uh, situation in our hands with some daring, interesting measures to try and solve it. Uh, but also, of course, uh, with the measures which we have to take with an important measure of, uh, uh, you know, caution. Hey. It's, it's, it's a funny thing, hyperinflation, and by funny I don't mean at all amusing to the people who are having to, to live <laughs> with it, but, uh, but there's been a couple of quite good, uh, some good examples of reporting just pointing out the incredibly debilitating logistical realities of hyperinflation, which is that you literally need to, to have a big bag full of money, which can be actually, I mean, I'm not being glib about this, it's quite heavy and inconvenient to carry around. I have some minor experience of similar situations, not as bad as this, but Afghanistan in the late 90s, uh, Iraq in the early 2000s, I can remember sort of going out for my daily round with, with, with a knapsack full of banknotes. Um, but again, that, 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 that was a merely deflated currency. Those, those were not completely collapsed currencies. Is that at least, Stephen, a, a temporary relief possibly to the people of Venezuela that... And, and, and these things do make a difference in themselves. Economies are about confidence. If it feels like things are slightly saner than they were, is this at least a reform worth making? 
I think they they have to do something quite clearly. And um, I mean, I thought it was interesting. I've I've, I've spent part of the day counting zeros. Um, so you know, they've knocked five zeros off off the currency. And my immediate thought was remembering when Russia knocked three off back in the nineties, and Russia had three periods of, of hyperinflation within 10 years mm. before the uh, thing stabilized. Yugoslavia, though, probably has the record. Um, in, in between 91 and 94, um, they knocked off four and then another one and then six and then nine. I, I, I have a set of <laughs> Serbian hyperinflation banknotes sent to me by a friend at the time who explained they only would have used them to start the barbecue otherwise, so I might as well have them for novelty bookmarks. Yeah. Uh, uh, and in fact, the last one, they, there was a further seven in 1994. But, and the country split up and became a number of countries. And, and um, I suppose that, you know, the, 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 the one uh, perhaps straw which the Venezuelans can grasp is that things in other countries, things have eventually got better. What really gets me, though, and if, you know, if I were from Venezuela, I, I, I think that the thing that would be most difficult to understand is Venezuela has the largest oil reserves Indeed. of any country in the world. Um, and it was oil, if, if you'll forgive me for using the Russian example again, but it was oil that eventually got Russia out of the problems at the end of the 90s and in the start of this century. Um, if Venezuela could actually get its oil industry working properly, then surely, surely that's going to uh, be a, a major step towards getting the country's economy back working again. Well, you're, you're right, that needs to happen because one difference here is that the Petro is an ERC-20 uh, blockchain, you know, Ethereum uh, type of uh, uh, currency and it is going to be uh, backed by uh, oil reserves. So it is important that PDVSA gets uh, uh, working. It is going to transfer, it has already transferred an Orinoco oil field with uh, uh, you know, some 30 uh, million uh, barrels of oil to the uh, central bank. And that is going to back up uh, this currency. So the currency has some solidity to it. Of course, it does depend on whether other buyers would want uh, that uh, that kind of oil. Okay, well, let's look now at the countries which are now the Czech Republic and Slovakia, but which 50 years ago today were trying to work out if they were still technically Czechoslovakia or merely another province of the Soviet Union. In response to a liberalising known as the Prague Spring, on August 20th, 1968, more than half a million troops from the USSR and the Warsaw Pact invaded Czechoslovakia, removed reformist leader Alexander Dubček and installed the obliging stooge Gustav Husak, who governed for the next several decades. Um, Stephen, was this a an event that actually teaches us anything about much before or since, or, or was it a, a standalone thing, a, a response by the Soviet Union, uh, obviously not a, a desirable or defendable one, but to a specific set of circumstances? It wasn't standalone because they had done something similar in, in Hungary. Hungary in 56, of course. Um, one could even argue they had done something similar in East Germany in 53 when there were riots in, in Berlin. Uh, Soviet tanks had moved in then. Uh, it was the single biggest movement of military forces in Europe uh, at that time since the Second World War. Um, so it, it's, it's something that I think still deserves to be looked at. And I think there are lessons to be learned because of what happened in Ukraine four years ago. Um, so you've gone through this stage of, of the Soviet Union dominating its, its allies in Eastern Europe, who, uh, whether they liked it or not, they were in the Warsaw Pact. Um, you then had the collapse of, of communism in 1989, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. 
and resentment which has been fueled since Putin came to power in 2000. Uh, and of course, what he's, he's trying to do now is whip up again this feeling of a great Russia um, and showing that Ukraine should still be part of Russia, hence stealing Crimea in 2014 and starting a war in Ukraine. Um, so I know it's, you know, it's, it's always tempting to say, oh, look, history is repeating itself. I wouldn't say it's exactly repeating itself, but I think that there is that lesson to be learned from 50 years ago that, in fact, unfortunately, in the Russian leadership and amongst certain Russians, Russian nationalists, there is still this feeling that they should dominate at least the Slav countries. Because, of course, Czechoslovakia and mm -hmm. Czech Republic are Slav countries as well. They're brotherly. They like to raise this idea that they're brotherly Slav countries and therefore they feel they have the right to intervene. So um, it's, uh, it's not just a moment in history. I think it is something that needs to be studied and, may, and people in Eastern Europe in particular should be rather wary of. Uh, the key difference, or a key difference, I guess, Oscar, is that, as, as Stephen points out, it was a, a massive uh, invasion by the, the Soviet Union, half a million men, tanks, planes, the whole nine yards, um, whereas now Russia invades its neighbours and then pretends it hasn't. Uh, why why the change? Because, uh, again, this is a, yes, say what you will about the invasion of Czechoslovakia, that the, the Soviet Union did not attempt to s deflect any sort of uh, scrutiny of it. They didn't pretend they weren't doing it. They carried their flags and wore their own uniforms and, and everything. Maybe they have learned from the putative enemies. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, uh, and I think we should remember this uh, as a lesson from that history, it has become fashionable in hindsight to blame uh, communist, uh, communism for the uh, suppression of the Prague Spring, but we must uh, not forget that uh, it was uh, firm and communists who were carrying out uh, Czechoslovakia's reforms. So the lesson for me is that transformation should come from within rather than, uh, uh, you know, intervened uh, as, as, as a result of intervention and or uh, a, a sort of... Uh, you know, there's ex machina following from above or abroad. And it is also the case that those revolutions uh, did have the support of a lot of people within uh, this country. That is also a difference uh, if we compare the events of nineteen uh, of the nineteen sixties. Are you talking about the original? Are you talking about the original reform or the Russian invasion in response to it? The original reform did uh, did have uh, a lot of uh, Indeed, support. So. Uh, whereas uh, in the Ukraine we we see this uh, uh, division and that division, uh, uh, which is also spreading to the, to uh, the European Union as such, is uh, might might be making things uh, much easier. Uh, for the Russians. But I think also one of the crucial things here is that in 68, a lot of people were already not in, within the Soviet Union, not believing in communism. But nevertheless, that was the banner. That was the, that this is, you know, this, this idea of creating socialism with a human face was, was which is what um, Dubček tried to do, was going away from the true tenets of socialism. And there was this ideology still behind what the Soviet Union did and what it wanted to do and what it wanted its, its friends and neighbours to do. Whereas now, this is one of the worrying things for me about the way Putin and the Russian leadership behaves, is there is no ideology behind it. It's all about wealth and power. And it's about uh, nationalism and it's about showing, you know, that, that we're strong again and, and that we can take Ukraine. And, um, which there's, there's no real 
Uh, there's no certainly no ideology behind it. There's no real idea behind it, even apart from this idea of wealth and power, showing that, that they can do it. But just to follow that up, is that why Russia, if we're talking about lessons learned, does not appear to have learned the lesson of the entire post-war period, which is that nobody really wants to be governed by Moscow. They had to build a fence across Europe to stop their entire subject population from leaving. Um, when the Soviet Union did finally collapse, almost all its constituents joined the EU and or NATO at the earliest available opportunity what why does moscow not take the hint because they don't understand it you're right um and also there is this great sense of grievance um make no bones about it when russians woke up, woke up and, and other members and people in other parts of the former soviet union but when they woke up on the um roughly the first of january uh, 1990 uh, 1992 sort of to a new situation where there were 15 different republics for many people, this was a huge psychological shock, and, and and they felt a real loss. It was as if they'd lost a limb, that suddenly this enormous country, which was still enormous, but had, had shrunk. Uh, and a lot of people have still to come to terms with that. And that is something Putin has played on. It's something the nationalists play on. They use the Russian Orthodox Church as well to, to that to say, you know, these are our Orthodox brothers, which reaches out to countries like Ukraine and, and Serbia and Greece as well. And it wasn't a part of the, the bloc. But that that... That um, feeling of nationalism, feeling that they that they are strong and have to show the world they're strong, still very much remains. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Stephen Dio. Coming up next, can you run a country from inside one of its prisons? Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in The Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, still with me are Oscar Huadiola Rivera and Stephen Diel. Now, professional political operatives are or should be adept at obfuscating disreputable aspects of their candidates' pasts. They didn't really do it, they weren't really there, they were present but not involved, and so on. However, the current presidential campaign of former Brazilian leader Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva would present a challenge to the most agile of spin doctors. Lula is attempting to win back the Palacio de Alvarada from inside the cell in which he is serving a 12-year stretch for corruption. However, he can now boast the support of the UN Human Rights Committee, which has suggested he should not be disqualified from the election while his appeals are ongoing. Um, Oscar, Brazil is technically obliged to comply with the rulings of the UN Human Rights Committee, as I understand it. So this is a a boost uh, to Lula's uh, attempts to contest this election, despite his present regrettable circumstances. Does the ruling really help him, though? 
Brazil is indeed juridically obliged to follow the ruling of the UN Human Rights uh, Committee uh, as it has ratified all the mm-hmm. legal, uh, the international legal instruments concerned, uh, which makes uh, some of the statements made by uh, judicial officers inside the country quite worrying and problematic. Some of them have said that the decision only has the status of a recommendation, meaning that uh, the uh, uh, the superior electoral tribunal and other tribunals would not have to uh, follow it or take it into consideration. That uh, is uh, a serious mistake. So now this is important because uh, if uh, uh, legal Uh, procedure and constitutional convention is followed, this would mean that the superior uh, uh, electoral tribunal and other tribunals would have to take this seriously into account when and uh, if they promptly resolve uh, the question of whether or not uh, uh, Lula's candidacy uh, will be invalidated. Now, uh, the Brazilian Attorney General, Raquel Dodgy, and I'm not going to make a joke about her surname, uh, <laughs> presented a request to the Brazilian I'm top sure court. I'm sure she's heard them all by this point. <laughs> For election matters, uh, uh, she, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, Raquel did point out that uh, the court required a speedy to take a speedy decision because the elections are in October. Uh, and so there is uh, a good chance that Lula uh, will run his campaign from within the cell uh, and uh, he, he might win. And that uh, will uh, uh, mean something very interesting it's, it's for going, us all. Well, it, it, it's, it's going to make getting to his inauguration challenging, certainly, uh, which does prompt the, well, it prompts many obvious questions, Stephen. L- leaving aside any questions of whether he should technically be able to run or whether or not you think he's a good candidate or any other, this is, this is ridiculous, isn't it? He's in prison. <laughs> He's running for president. It it does sound rather like the theatre of the absurd. Um, But I think there's there's a serious issue here as well um, about the role of the United Nations Um, because it's it's effectively laid down a challenge to Brazil. You know, it's saying the United Nations Human Rights Commission is, some would say, um, interfering in Brazilian domestic affairs by saying, you know, look, this man should be allowed to run. Um, So what what do they do If if they ignore the UN? Is that another nail in the coffin of the UN. You know, some people around the world say, well, you know, what's the point of the United Nations these days? It's, uh, you know, it doesn't suit the modern world. Um, and if Brazil were to you know, were to ignore um, what the, what the uh, Human Rights Commission is saying, is that another backward step for the UN? Um, what authority does the UN have these days? I think that's, that's, that's also an issue that, that uh, had me thinking. Um, I also I was wondering whether, you know, they're, they're, they're treading a, something of a thin line. Um, forgive me bringing in the Russian equivalent again, but, you know, earlier this year, Russia had presidential elections and Alexei Navalny was prevented from standing on what everyone agrees were trumped up charges of tax evasion. Um, you know, they, they were trumped. Up. The Russian courts, everyone knows, are not uh, are not fair. You know, they do what the Kremlin wants them to do. Um, should they not have stepped in and said, you know, there's, there's you know, there's human rights abuses going on in Russia all the time, and, and many people would say, well, Navalny was a victim of them, but the human rights UN Human Rights Commission stayed silent on that one. Well, but I, ha- I have to clarify two points there. I mean, the UN uh, did intervene in the Brazilian case not because it did so ex officio, but because it was requested uh, to intervene by uh, Lula's uh, uh, judicial so. team. So that, that is a very important uh, issue. And on uh, the other point, uh, the UN uh, has tremendous reputation 
uh, within the Americas, particularly in Latin America, whose uh, uh, you know approach to international law is quite different from uh, the sort of very skeptical and uh, uh, somehow this missing uh, uh, approach that uh, we may be more familiar with uh, here. So in the case of Brazil, precisely because these are prompt-up charges, uh, politically motivated to keep uh, Lula in prison, to uh, allow for an already occurring coup d'etat to uh, be formalized, precisely because of that is that the UN intervened. The, one of the other issues in which it intervened is a, an acceptable prohibition, uh, which uh, uh, in uh, Brazil forbids Lula from actually making videos or voice recordings, which in every uh, part of the world would be taken and should be taken as a an acceptable violation of the right to freedom uh, of speech. Except and that he's, so, he's in jail, though. And does that mean you cannot uh, uh, make videos? Does that mean that you lose your uh, political rights entirely and completely? Certainly not in terms of uh, I mean, international well, but, but law. Just a final quick thought on this. Uh, along p- pursuing this to its likely outcome um, or possible outcome, it's not entirely without precedent, obviously, for people to run from office from prison uh, as recently as 1981 in this country. In fact, Bobby Sands won the uh, the seat of Fermanagh in West Tyrone, if memory serves, while, while on hunger strike. Um, for the, he would have stood as a Sinn Féin candidate, that's right, but IRA member on hunger strike, won a, won a seat as an MP in 1981. But if we follow this all the way through to its, its possible conclusion, Oscar, and Lula actually wins the presidency, um, how is that actually going to work? Has anybody thought that through? Well, the law in Brazil is quite clear. Uh, if you are convicted and your conviction stands... Uh, you cannot uh, actually act uh, uh, in office. So he wouldn't be able to be I- inaugurated. Part of the uh, of the problem here is that, com- is that, that the conviction is still under controversy. There are still a number of appeals ongoing, and that's what makes this case different. Okay, well, finally, night to Austria, the foreign minister of which, Karen Kneissel, got married at the weekend. Congratulations and so forth. Among the guests and photographed cutting a rug with the bride was President Vladimir Putin of of Russia, who bought not merely flowers, but a Cossack choir, as one does. It has been reasonably pointed out that this hospitality seems somewhat at odds with the wider EU position on Russia, which has Russia cast in a measure of odium until it stops invading its neighbours and poisoning former spies on foreign soil. Um, Stephen, first of all, leaving aside any friendship that may exist between the foreign minister and the Russian president, and there is some debate over the extent and the nature of that friendship. Certain skeptics have suggested they actually barely know each other. Uh, was the information was the inv- information invitation somewhat tactless? Highly tactless, <laughs> uh, um, and unfortunately, I mean, if, I'm going to be I'm going to be serious for a moment because it all it sounds a bit jokey, but it is actually. I, I think she's made a, a huge political error because. Uh, there's already been a lot of voices raised around Europe. There's a lot of worry already about Austria and its and its position vis-a-vis Russia, vis-a-vis sanctions, vis-a-vis what Russians doing in Ukraine, uh, and to to fly in the face of general European and EU opinion um, when there are you know sanctions in place, and, and to issue a personal invitation to the man who's responsible for Russia's actions. Um, just either she's incredibly naive 
uh, or incredibly scheming or just rather stupid. I don't know. Well, in, in proper sort of local radio style, I, I, I did want to use this item to segue seamlessly into a discussion of which slightly disreputable foreign leader would you invite to your wedding? Uh, I'll, I'll go with you first, Oscar. Are, are you going to add to the challenges currently facing Lula or are you going to, are you going to suggest somebody else? <laughs> Seriously disreputable, that... that, that, that. <laughs> That puts a qualification. I'm not sure I, I, I can, uh, you know, uh, I, ca I cannot answer to. Uh, certainly, I have thought, uh, you know, I'm two Latin Americans. Of course, I think about people who can dance. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and so, of course, I, although he's not in office, I would invite Obama. He can dance and he's also very witty. Uh, also, I have to say, being Latin American, I'm not sure about a Cossack choir in my wedding. Probably not. Those, those, go, those guys, well, the Cossack dancing would be would That be would be That would be nice. That would be a spectacular. This is reputable leaders. Ooh, the Cuban leadership. Then they might uh, help me bring in, in one of uh, my favorite orchestras to play in the Well, wedding. they might. There was one American headline, which did. I don't know whether they were trying to be funny, but it did say Vladimir Putin dances at wedding in Vienna, sets off alarm bells across Europe. And I just thought, <laughs> you know, how clumsy is this guy really uh, Stephen any any thoughts if, you, if we're talking disreputable I, I don't think we need to look any further than Washington I mean you know can you imagine <laughs> having Trump at your wedding you know be, be, you know you know, you know we, we, you'd say probably send out say you know you said you got married it's fake news you didn't really get married um, I, I think also, uh, you know, coming closer to home, um, if you wanted someone who'd be really boring at your wedding, you know, have Theresa May. You know, Theresa May, whose worst thing to do as a child was run through a cornfield. I believe she had bare feet at the time. I think it was a wheat field. Um, a wheat really, field. A wheat field. That's the most apologies. pedantic thing but I've the, ever said to yeah. <laughs> But... Um, uh, I, I was I, I was uh, very taken with the fact that Oscar thought you know he, he shows his roots you know it's got to be someone who can dance I, I hadn't thought of it that way I must admit I thought you know who'd be the most boring per boring per I mean two people <laughs> well, I I, as, as an Australian I am of course going to argue that's the Englishman returning to his roots yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just want you just want a sort of you know, a passive aggressive dullard who'll give a not terribly interesting speech well actually to someone who if you were looking at who you would want but actually you know someone who who give a good speech um, and someone who's you know, young and sort of brings a bit of panache I would say a Macron you know bring them the, 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 the couple the, the French couple bring to the wedding because you know that would that'd be quite impressive but you know I'd be quite happy to have them there but I mean it's actually it's 19 years ago today that I got married so um, uh, I'm not looking to do any, uh, any any more of that in the near future actually ever again I hope well happy anniversary <laughs> and on that upbeat note that does bring us to the end of today's show Oscar Juadiola Rivera and Stephen Diel thank you for joining us at Midori House the show was produced by Carlotta Rebello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Julia Webster our studio manager was David Stevens music next at 1900 it's the Monocle Culture Show I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200 Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. For now, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.